Welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to, to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this Saturday and every Saturday evening for education, awareness, enlightenment, and entertainment, um, primarily surrounding the issues of the aftermath of crime. And so I want to welcome everyone here, whether you are a veteran listener or a new listener this evening. And uh, it's so nice to be continuing our series, our seven-week series, with up-and-coming as well as uh, seasoned authors from Wild Blue Press. Uh, So far, it's been a very rewarding experience, and I've learned so much. I've made new friends, and um, I look forward to uh, this evening's uh, broadcast as well as our coming ones. And we do, in fact, have a very well-known, seasoned, and entertaining author with us this evening um, that's going to enlighten us on a very special book. But before I do, I want to say good evening and uh, happy Valentine's Day. Delilah, how are you? Hi, Donna. Doing great. Um, you, you really recapped it well. We've been having a great time with all of the authors from Wild Blue Press, and it's been such an honor to be able to present them and and new books and and especially this author, Brilliant Burl Bearer, one of my favorites, and, and Burl and I, we've had fun on the radio, we've had fun on the phone, and, and he's just a great guy all around. So, you know, it's it's going to be a fun hour. Looking forward to it. Yeah, uh, for sure. And um, I don't I don't know, um, you know, how, how to quite begin because he, he is a sort of a, man, a jack of all trades and has done so many varied and interesting things, but let me just say that um, um, in the majority, I believe you could characterize him as his his background includes uh, being an investigative journalist um, and and, and, an author and a radio host and uh, many, many other things. And um, like I say, I think he does everything uh, with his own unique personality and um his own style of writing and um he has many books to his to his um his credit and so I'd like to say good evening Burl and welcome to Shattered Lives. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on your show and happy Valentine's Day to you too. And to Delilah, Judy. Yes. Well, we we all hope that we have our main squeeze or we do something special <laughs> for those we love. Right? <laughs> yes, if you can't squeeze the one you love, squeeze the one you're with. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess uh, I guess that goes for special people in melons, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> so, see, I can give it back to you, too. Um, but uh, in any case, Pearl, we, you, can you bring us up to date a little bit for those people who may not be familiar with your background before we delve into sure, uh, sure. your relationship with Wild Blue Press? What <clears> is <throat> it that you're primarily known for in terms of your history? What have you done and up until well, this I, point? Well, I, I have. I've only been arrested once. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that was for a DWBOB driving with a black on board. Uh, oh. But I, <laughs> I got out of that one. Uh, I uh, I started off as a young child, as, as most people do. Uh, I yeah. began actually in, in radio broadcasting at an early age, and then into cable television advertising, and I've always done writing. Uh, my very first book was The Saint, A Complete History in Print, Radio, Television, and Film, for which I won the Edgar Award, which, as you know, is the highest award you could win for the Mystery Writers of America. But right. once you win it, they, they can't take it away from you. <laughs> and so every book I've had since then says on the cover, Edgar Award winner, which is just wonderful. You know, it's like winning an Oscar or something. In fact, Quentin right. Tarantino uh, Quentin Tarantino won the uh, Edgar Award for Pulp Fiction, and he said the Edgar meant more to him than the Academy Award. So uh, wow. I'm in good, good company, all the way back at the Christine, Mickey Spillane, and, and uh, several others. So that was a real 
a real joy. Of course, I didn't expect to win. It was kind of, I felt that was kind of the Angela Pass nomination. I almost didn't go to the award ceremony, but I was encouraged to go because I meet so many famous people. And, you know, I don't get nervous uh, in crowds or on stage or anything like that. But mm-hmm. you know, everyone wondered why these famous people or movie stars, whatever, when they win an award, act like they've been hit in the head with a brick. And now I understand why. Uh, when they said, you know, the envelope, please, all of a sudden I started to tremble. And it just blew my mind because I don't get nervous. And there was a lady from, I think, NBC sitting next to me, and she put her hand on mine and said, relax, we'll all be over in a minute. And I said, why, are they going to shoot me? And then they <laughs> opened the envelope and said, the winner is the same, by Burl Bear. It was such a shot of adrenaline. It was like I was blasted out of a cannon. And I just got up there and said, I thank you. And Leslie thanks you. That's Leslie Charters who created the character. And sat down, and I was just buzzed for hours. <laughs> wow. Mm. Well, do, you, do you feel like since then that, that with, with every succeeding book that maybe maybe you'll hit that pinnacle of success again? Or is well, it allowed that you can win a second time? Uh, it is allowed, yes. But, uh, you know, it's very difficult because I, I went from that into, uh, into true crime. And actually, uh, this book, the, my, my most recent, which is actually a 20-year anniversary edition of Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, uh, which is probably the, the world's only funny true crime book, came out 20 years ago. And uh, the great uh, Jack Olson, the dean of American true crime, was head of the uh, true crime uh, committee that year, and he I guess they have rules against this now, but at that time, I guess there wasn't. He took me aside afterwards and said, you were you were one boat away from an Edgar nomination. He said, uh, for Man Overboard, he said it was one of his really? favorites. Really made me feel good. And it was nominated uh, in the category of Best True Crime Book of the Year at uh, World Mystery Convention in Bouchercon. And Ann Rule and I were together there. And she says, oh, Pearl, I just know you're going to win. And I said, no, I don't think so. Sure enough, Ann won for a Dead by Sunset. But I'll tell you a strange thing. My family is in her book, Dead by Sunset, and she is in my book, Man Overboard. Really? Oh, that's quite a coincidence. Wow. And that's because uh, my brother's law firm was the firm that the victim worked for uh, in her book, Dead by Sunset. And uh, actually the killer, who was a photographer, also took photographs of my brother's uh, and wife and children that hang on his wall. So, uh, And she's in my book because her daughter and Phil Champagne's daughter were close personal friends. So it was kind of strange that we were both nominated, both nominated <laughs> and were in each other's books. Interesting little well, sideline. Well, that's karma. That's karma that, you know, you have to continue your collaboration there. Wow. <laughs> And then I uh, I started writing serious or, you know, very depressing, <laughs> sort of, you know, true crime books for Kensington Publishing, starting with uh, Murder in the Family. And I wrote several for them, uh, Murder in the Family, Headshot, Body Count, about Spokane, Serial Killer, uh, mm-hmm. Mom's Like Kill, which has been adapted several times uh, on television, on uh, Investigation Discovery, on Deadly Women, Deadly Sins, and all those, and uh, Fatal Beauty, uh, most recently with them, and that's been on uh, several of those TV shows also. And then uh, I signed with Wild Blue Press for this fabulous, I'm very pleased with how beautiful the book is, uh, for those who get it in paperback, where it's uh, also available as an e-book, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, and... uh, the book was a, a big hit when it first came out 20 years ago, which took me totally by surprise. <laughs> mm. Because the, the manuscript that was published was not the final uh, one that I worked so hard on. The publisher accidentally sent the wrong disc to the printer, and what they published was uh, uncorrected page proofs of an earlier draft. <laughs> oh, yeah. no. Oh, but uh, it got so how did that all play out, Burl? After after the well, book was published, what 
the oh, wrong really? manuscript. Did they um, do a second printing, or what? What no, happened? No, actually, the uh, the publisher folded and he went to prison. Oh, great! He went. He went to prison. Uh, the publisher oh. of the book went went to prison. Uh, it's very oh. strange. It's a whole a whole other story. Uh, so I got the rights back to the book, uh, and I. I, when I would sign the original editions, because of the first 19 pages hadn't been revised, and uh, bless her heart, E.W. Count had uh, helped revise the first 19 pages, but that wasn't the version that was printed. I would write in the front of every book, if you can make it past the first 19 pages, you'll have it made. <laughs> also, also, when I would sign the book to women, I would always write, I want to thank you for your years of financial and emotional support, and I'll always treasure the weekend we spent together in the Bahamas. <laughs> and women would be dedication, and they go, oh, my God, I've got to hide this from my husband. He'll think I had an affair with you. Well, that was the idea. I figured yeah. all these, I mean, I, I did it on hundreds and hundreds of books, that if women hid this book away long after we're all gone, their grandkids will find the book and go, this explains why our family was so dysfunctional. Oh, Grandpa my was having God. an affair with two writers, <laughs> and there'd be support groups like adult grandchildren of women who had affairs with pearl bears, something like that. You don't, you don't want it to collect in some dusty library shelf, do you? No, no, no. Um, so, what was the impetus for doing the 20th anniversary? Did you want to like have a new start and make all these corrections that should have been in the well, first actually, place? Well, actually, I. I I didn't make uh, I didn't make corrections because the book did uh, so well as it was that all yeah. I did was added a couple sentences to the opening chapter. I put a new introduction uh, on the book explaining uh, what some of the strange errors were or mm-hmm. are. It's rather amusing. I said someone's dead who's not. Maybe by now they are. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, some other little tidbits about the book. And the book has an afterword by by Phil Champagne himself. Plus, kind of like those uh, fancy DVDs that have bonus features, the book has, yeah. uh, the new edition has bonus features. It has transcripts of Phil Champagne's actual interrogation by federal agents, uh, you know, various court documents, and some new pictures. And, of course, if people aren't familiar with the story, I can give you the, the short pitch. You want to hear it? Sure. Like, of you course. Know, this- can we hold on just one second because I want to make sure that I announced this a couple of times um, with regard to the promotion. I know we spoke about oh, it off yeah. We what have to do the promotion, okay, um, with, with uh, under the auspices of, of Steve Jackson and, and his promotion team. What we are doing here this evening, ladies and gentlemen, is we're doing a, a special giveaway. And because you are listening to uh, Shattered Lives Live, we are going to be giving away Burl's exciting and humorous, yes, that's right, humorous and exciting, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Silk Champagne for just 99 cents. 99 cents. That's all you have to pay. And what you have to do in order to get it at that steal of the price is to go to wildpress.com slash... Oh, Wild Blue Press. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Yes, wildbluepress.com slash M-O for uh, Man Overboard. And then as an extra added attraction feature, added gift, just for Shattered Life listeners who are listening live, um, if you go to the page, you can also... Register for to win one of an array of 25 true crime audiobooks from Wild Blue Press. Okay, and then once you do that, the winners for 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 that audiobook will be announced next week. Okay, after this show airs. So oh, that's again, a heck of a deal. Obviously, I'm not making any. I'm losing money on every sale and making it up in volume. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be 99 cents even at the dollar store, Burl, right? I know. Yeah, it's, right. it's a heck of a deal. So if you're listening to this show, go to wildbluepress.com forward slash M-O and right. get the, uh, the bargain of a lunchtime. <laughs> right, and register for an audio book. So we yes. just wanted to get that in, so my apologies for interrupting, but we do want oh, no, to kind of get 
Yes, it is, and we'll announce it again too. Like we do want to get to the to the meat of the book. You know, this is this is about a man who who seemingly had a a, a good life up until age fifty two and uh, was was in business, and then all of a sudden, you know, supposedly had a, yeah. a boat accident. And well, I'll tell you, here's here's the deal. 1982, Oregon businessman Bill Champagne died in a tragic boating accident off Lopez Island, Washington. He was mm-hmm. survived by one ex-wife, four adult children, an octogenarian mother, and two despondent brothers. Bill did not know he was dead until he read it in the newspaper. All things considered, he took it rather well. So did his brother Mitch, the beneficiary of a $1.5 million insurance policy on Phil. Now, jump ahead 10 years, 1992, Washington State restaurateur Harold Stegman, famous for his thick, juicy steaks, is arrested by the United States Secret Service for printing counterfeit $100 bills in a tiny shed in Idaho. In addition to the bogus bills, Stegman has a fraudulently obtained passport, a fabricated Cayman Islands driver's license, and Phil Champagne's fingerprints. Yes, oh. it's the story of fraud, deception, trickery, lies, and fine crime rip. That that sounds very intriguing in, <laughs> indeed. And from from what I gathered from the information that I I read, though, this particular gentleman had at least three identities, bro. Multiple identities. Multiple. See, when 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 he fell overboard off his brother's boat, there all things hadn't been going well. He was going through a bad divorce. Uh, the interest rates were really high at that time, and they were a home construction firm. And uh, he was kind of depressed. His brothers thought they'd cheer him up, take him out on this boat ride, but he got drunk and fell overboard. Well, the Coast Guard searched for the body for 13 hours and never found it, so he was declared dead. Well, actually, he was rescued out of the water by an illegal fisherman who didn't dare take him to the hospital, took him back to his cabin where uh, Phil had hypothermia. Phil comes to uh, a day or two later, and it says in the paper that he's dead. Well, that's a heck of a deal. Uh, <laughs> there's a song you might as well take it. advantage the song, of it then? The song says, what would you do if it happened to you? Would you start your life over? I mean, would you go back to your old life or would you just start anew? Well, he decided, this is a heck of a deal. I'm dead. So, he had $1,500 in his pocket rather than his wallet because it's a lot easier to lose your wallet than it is your pants. And so he had money in his pants. He only tells one person, his best friend, that he's alive. uh, Borrows another couple grand. And back in those days, you could make fake ID real easy. All you needed was an electroset kit, you know. So he mm-hmm. made ID, called himself, I think, Peter Donovan, goes to Mexico, gets involved with some criminals and drug smugglers, almost gets killed there, <laughs> managed to escape, goes to Florida. Now, you must understand that Phil, he's 84 now. He's still alive, still charming and suave, very good-looking guy, very suave and charming, a ladies' man. And he had no trouble hooking up with very wealthy women who just were more than delighted to take care of him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he would make himself useful being a construction guy. And uh, he wound up uh, down on the Florida coast with a fancy boat of his own and money in his pocket and uh, wound up getting involved with some people that uh, were trying to kill him. And so with a lot of action, a lot of adventure, it's all, if it's, if it's a pack of lies, the lies are certainly well packaged. And uh, he winds up uh, going back to the state of Washington with a brand new name. Now, he picked the name Harold Richard Stegman. Why did he pick that name? He found it on a grave in Florida, uh, someone who had, was born the same time he was, but uh, died in childhood. What Bill didn't know is that organized crime had mined that graveyard decades before, and that name, Harold Richard Stegman, had been used by criminals worldwide for oh. years. Oh. He didn't know that. So when uh, his uh, new wife, girlfriend, we want to call her, gets popped for passing a counterfeit bill at the Kinkin Steak uh, in Richville, Washington, 
and they run his fingerprints, they don't get any match, but when they run the name, they get pages and pages of criminal activity, uh, you know, smuggling guns in Africa, formatting revolution, uh, Senate Minority Leader David Joel Friedman from New Jersey used that same name when he faked his death to the Bahamas and went to the Maldives. So they thought they had Kaiser Soze or John Dillinger. They thought they had one of the world's biggest criminals. So when they finally arrested him, he made this great deal. He would tell them everything about his criminal empire, which didn't exist, <laughs> in exchange for the lowest possible uh, sentence on everything. Well, it's just hysterical. The, the Secret Service agent who arrested him, great guy named Lyle Workman, was Lyle's last case and his favorite case. And he says, Phil Champagne is the last of the great gentleman crooks. Because it was like, dealing with Ronald Coleman or something. This is a guy who was so suave, <laughs> so smooth, so mm-hmm. polite. Just, I really like the guy. <laughs> he, he would like a lot of criminals because they are charming. Now, this seemed like it was a, a initially a, like a crime of opportunity. Had had you know had he not read that he was dead and he was kind of down and out anyway. Okay, there there was that, and then. And then all of a sudden he picks, you know, he picks this guy's name off the grave who was notorious, and his his life got very complicated. It, it, oh, it very seemed, complicated. You know, not only, very. Not, not only uh, was uh, the other Harold uh, uh, Stegman, well, all the different ones, uh, suspected of uh, formatting a revolution in Africa, but also smuggling guns, smuggling drugs, and it was a a drug dealer in Florida named Ronald Collister, who was a double agent. Uh, he'd get arrested for dealing drugs and be turned over to another agency, which meant he was an informant. He tried to get a driver's license in the name Harold Stegman two weeks after Phil did. And so uh, even when Phil was serving his minimal stay in prison, the prison thought he was this drug dealer, Ronald Collister. He had a hard time explaining to people that he wasn't any of these other people. That <laughs> 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 he was just well, campaign. Well, how long did it ta- how long did it take right. to figure all of this out? And with you know, right. with all of these potential charges that they could have charged him with, did it, what was he charged with after this actually all he was, straightened he himself was, out? Uh, actually, he was charged with conspiracy to counterfeit and having a falsely obtained passport. He did, and that's uh, it? <laughs> he, he did 18 months work release <laughs> at a federal, mm-hmm. prison, uh, federal prison Geiger Correctional Facility in Spokane, Washington. But uh, it was really problematic because the Secret Service and the FBI and Interpol and everybody was trying to figure out who he, who he was. Because mm-hmm. the didn't match anything. And uh, they, they couldn't find out because the real Phil Champagne had no criminal record. So it was so frustrating. The secret, and he wouldn't say who he was. Once they figured out he wasn't, his real name wasn't Harold Segman, but he wouldn't say what his real name was. And they couldn't find out. Well, purely on a whim, Lyle Workman walked into the Spokane, Washington Police Department and gave him the fingerprints and said, why don't you run them? Well, the FBI, CIA, Secret Service, no one could find out. Well, Spokane runs and says, oh, yeah, we got a match. And that was because in 1930-something, when he was 19 years old, Bill took a car without permission, and they had his fingerprints. It should have been expunged from his record decades ago. They shouldn't have still had that in their system. But they did. Mm -hmm. And that's how they found out. Wendell Champagne, and aside from well, one little problem, he was 19 years old, he never had committed any crime worse than a parking ticket. Mm-hmm. But then they but, knew who he was, and they had, well, of course, he had to let his family know that he was alive. Because wow. his family thought he'd been dead for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Well, how did they take that news? Right. I was wondering that, too. Well, imagine how shocked they were. Yeah. 
And then, plus federal Kemper Insurance, who had paid his brother $650,000 of the $1.5 million, suddenly thought they'd been deceived and wanted their money back. In fact, they even tried to attach my money from the book when it first came out, thinking your money was going to fill. Are you uh, serious? Wow. Yeah, they went after my publisher. My publisher at that time said, we don't have any contract with Phil Champagne. We have a contract with Burl Bear to write a book about him. Well, Mm -hmm. it turns out they wound up dropping it entirely. And just, well, okay, he got it fair and square. So they they never pursued getting the 650000 back from uh, his brother Mitch. And uh, 18 uh, months later, Phil was uh, out of work release. And at that time, just about every talk show in America wanted Phil on, Montel Williams, uh, Ricky Lake. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They all wanted Phil. He held back, and it was several other authors wanted to do this story. Now, I had no didn't know anything about it until I got a phone call on a Sunday night from a famous bass player in the Northwest named Buck Ormsby. Out of the blue, I hadn't heard from him in years and years and years. He says, Burl, he says, I want you to take a look at the story and see if you'd be interested in writing it. Ann Rules, I think, recommended you. So he faxed me the information, and it was so fascinating. I just had to go meet this Bill Champagne. Well, I knew other authors had, had approached him. But And he hadn't gone with any of them. And I thought I had a hunch why. So I went up there, and uh, I was just wearing jeans and a, my Saint sweatshirt. <laughs> and uh, there was minimum security. I met him outside, got a cup of coffee, sat down uh, next to him, not across him, but next to him. And I didn't say anything for a while. Finally, I just turned to him and I said, tell me, Phil, how good were the bills, the counterfeit bills? He says, well, they were so good, they made it all the way to the Federal Reserve Bank in Seattle before, you know, they were really caught, except for the, the one that was, you know, the poker mm-hmm. and cake and steak. And he had bought a bunch of pies uh, with the uh, counterfeit money. That's, you know, he had a counterfeit $100 bills, and he'd buy a pie and get the change. I said, well, what I don't understand is, why buy pies? You could have gone down to Sprague Avenue and rolled it over with some drug dealers at night. And uh, he says, yeah, he says, but I'm 60-some years old. I don't know any drug dealers. That's out of my, my realm. So all I needed to do was go buy pies. Go buy my pie. strategy was, instead of saying, hi, I'm an author, I want to do a book, was to engage him in conversation, establish a rapport, appeal to his criminal pride, and bango, we hit it off just great. And we've mm-hmm. been friends ever since. Now, well, I, that's, I kind of that's- Great. <laughs> and and how, when, when did he pass away? Now, well, he did pass away. He's alive and well. He's 84 still years old. Yeah. And as charming okay. as ever. Mm-hmm. And you know, his, his second wife, Barb Fraley, uh, she thought she was married to Harold Stegman, and she finds out that that's not his name. And, <laughs> and she's been arrested for passing a counterfeit bill. And... <laughs> She didn't know who she'd married or what was going on. Oh, uh, are they are they still married as a result? They're, you, you, oh, they're, so they're still married? married, very happily they're married. married. Yeah. Well, as a result of this, did they did they learn anything um, meaningful in order to to uh, with with Harold and and all of the um, the people who took on that identity and all of the crimes that were committed there? Did this somehow? Well, uh, Help? No, it wasn't really helpful, but I'll tell you, I did talk to uh, a fellow from the uh, Department of, I think it's Department of Justice, whatever, the the guys who investigate the organized crime, RICO, whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. This particular, uh, and it's in the book, this particular fellow traveled to the Maldive Islands to uh, arrest another Harold Stegman, uh, which was that Senate Minority Leader David Joel Friedland from New Jersey. The Secret Service told me that there was another guy, a mafia guy, uh, in prison, uh, I think in New York, who had a good buddy who also had used that name, uh, Harold Stegman. And they were tempted to go to him with a picture of Phil and say, do you know this guy? <laughs> so maybe, you know, they were all connected. But it turned out, though, Phil just had the, uh, the misfortune of, of picking a name 
that organized crime and used around the world for years. But it's a, it's a fun story. It's a wild story. Uh, some people say, gee, is this, is this a true story? Well, you know, there's some parts that you can't verify, and uh, including some shootings and some bodies, things like that. And I talked to the police chief uh, down there in Boca Raton, Florida, where some of this more violent action takes place. And I gave him the dates and everything. I said, does this really, uh, really take place? And he says, you know, says, if this is true, he says, we would be the last to know. Because we're in Boca Raton, Florida, and if there's drug dealers involved in shootouts, he says, we don't know about it. <laughs> he says, yeah. And I know that everything following that particular thing is all verifiable, uh, all been checked out. So the the most far-fetched aspects of this story, and the funniest aspects, and sometimes the most violent aspects, apparently are 100% true. And it's like I say, if it is a pack of lies, the lies are well packaged. Mm-hmm. Truth is, uh, is stranger than fiction. But, hey, uh, something that I read was, was that... Um, after the um when when he actually fell overboard there was um his brother John and then another person Larry Wills who owned a right, Larry carpet Wills, and yeah. furniture cleaning what happened with what happened with them well i'll tell you poor larry was so upset that was just his best friend Bill Champagne is drowned he was inconsolable uh John Robert his brother who was with him on the boat he was very, of course, heartbroken. So was Mitch. In fact, Bill's wife, the one who was divorcing him, sued the brothers in a wrongful death suit over Bill's death, and she collected quite a bit of money too. Wow! And wow. then, of course, ten years later, he shows up alive. He didn't know how his brother would react to that. He had to write his brother Mitch a letter and say, "Gee, you probably hate me, thinking I've been dead for ten years." You know. Hope you can forgive mm-hmm. me. Well, Mitch wasn't well, quite so sure if he was going to forgive him or not. <laughs> well, how did he? Was he able to make amends with his children and ex-wife, uh, new yes, wife, and all yes, of that? Yes and no. Uh, there was some. There was understandably some resentments there regarding him and uh, with the kids, and also that his first wife, ex-wife. Uh, turned out to have uh, some severe health problems, had brain cancer, and he actually came forward and helped her out, got her to a specialist, etc. It was a little late due to some alleged, I'll say, alleged neglect on behalf of perhaps one or more of her kids. So uh, his daughter uh, did actually take care of Barb's kids uh, while Barb and Phil went to prison for those 18 months. Uh, but I think they may be estranged again now. But, uh, yeah, it's difficult when, when wow. your dad, you know, you think your dad is dead for 10 years and turns out he's not. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we, we think we have uh, complicated family family dynamics. You know, had he not, bro, had he not, had it not been the turn of events that it that it was with him picking, you know, the, the name that he did and it evolved in that way, would he have been content just to kind of be under the radar and incognito for the rest of his life? And, I mean, did he want to live the life of sort of a con man and, and live, you know, high off the hog with this money? Or what What was his intent? Well, you know, he, uh, his intent at the time was to, to stay gone, you know. Uh, he had a new name. He uh, moved back to the West Coast. Uh, he had money with him, uh, which when you read the books, you'll, uh, you'll read the exciting story of how he liberated about a half million dollars from a drug kingpin safe <laughs> and escaped. Mm-hmm. Comes back, meets this woman with five kids, this waitress in a restaurant, falls in love with her, builds her her own restaurant, a beautiful new home, but sadly the, uh, the restaurant uh, goes under and uh, runs out of money. And that's when he decided, gee, what can I do to get some money to get a dry cleaning franchise or something? And he decided that he'd counterfeit uh, some money, which isn't easy to do. I'll tell you a funny bit from the book. When he sat down with the federal agents when he cut his deal, the first question they asked him was, what kind of copy camera 
did you use to take the picture of the 1990 Series E $100 bill that you counterfeited? And his reply was, gentlemen, if I could have afforded a copy camera, I wouldn't have had to be a counterfeiter. <laughs> he said, well, how did you take the picture? I uh-huh. built a box camera out of cardboard, poked a hole in the cardboard, used a light bulb as a light source, got a lens from St. Vincent to Paul, and being sort to build a box camera, you need frosted glass. He didn't have any frosted glass, so he took a broken pane of glass and put Scotch magic tape on it to make it frosted. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> this this guy was talented, though. How would he, you know, it, and, and people didn't really discover, discover these. Um, I, I read that one of your colleagues, one of your um, co, co-authors said that he never knew that that counterfeiting was was that complex, and he learned a lot about counterfeiting from your book. Yeah, yes, that's true. I I learned a lot about it also, uh, <laughs> which which served me well because uh, uh, I uh, I gave somebody some money once when I was in Vegas, sent them on an errand, they spent the money on something else. I said, oh, at the store they said it was counterfeit, and the police took it away from me. I said, you're lying. I said, I know all about counterfeiting. And no, the police don't take it. It has to be the United States Secret Service. They're the ones mm-hmm. who make the determination if it's counterfeit or not, not any local police. And I learned so much about uh, the Secret Service. So the Secret Service only has two two roles. One is to protect the integrity of the United States currency. And the other, of course, is to be willing to take a bullet for the president, vice president, or other dignitaries. Those are their two roles, those are two things they do. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a funny thing is that uh, to try to do anything with counterfeiting is Las Vegas. And in fact, the Secret Service has one of their main offices in Las Vegas. But there are still people who think, boy, I could go to Las Vegas with counterfeit money orders or counterfeit money and get away with it. No, you can't. That's the worst, worst place to try to go. <laughs> Any, or any casino because they're so sophisticated that that, that mm-hmm. yeah they're, the techniques and whatnot oh, yeah. but um yeah how we well, you know um, I think that brings up an interesting point how you know true crime writers and and I know quite a few of you and and you say how much you learned about counterfeit and all of the research that that you all do in the books that you write. You could really learn a lot of stuff that you probably never thought you wanted to know, and and now you know. <laughs> that, right? That's true. My one of my favorite thing, actually, my favorite thing, I guess, about true crime books, is the research. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I love the research. Unfortunately, no, none of us gets a research budget, even for the big publishers. Uh, you're all on your own, and that makes it difficult. Uh, but the the research is fascinating, and. Uh, I've got uh, two more true crime books, new ones, in the works with Wild Blue Press. It'll be coming out, uh, one in the spring, and uh, not quite sure after that. But uh, I've hooked up with a great, great journalist and a great guy named Frank C. Gerardo, Jr., who wrote uh, the book Name Dropper, which is really a fabulous book about the guy who claimed to be a Rockefeller, but he wasn't. Oh, yes. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and uh, the book Name Drop is a great book, and the journalist uh, Frank C. Gerardo is a real, like, almost a Raymond Chandler, good old school gumshoe sort of investigative crime reporter. Uh, as well as it uh, uh, says that he's he's the uh, he's the crime investigator. Other crime writers wish they were. Uh, he's just great. Well, he and I have teamed up together for uh, two books that we're doing for Wild Blue. One which has a tentative title of Wicked Widow. I don't know if that'll be the final title of it. About this uh, woman uh, here in California, uh, originally from uh, New York, who murdered her husband by putting uh, antifreeze in his Gatorade, which is right. not the way to go. This woman was so remarkably nuts that he had hardly hit the floor when she was on the phone with the insurance company to get the money. Well, when time goes by and she doesn't get the check, she calls the insurance company wants to watch you haven't got the check yet. And they say, well, in order to write a check to you, we have to have the coroner give us the cause of death. And the death certificate doesn't have cause of death on it. 
And so she calls the coroner, medical examiner, whatever, and, and he confirms, yes, he says, we don't know why, for sure why your husband died. And she says, well, have you thought maybe someone poisoned him by putting antifreeze in his Gatorade? Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, that sounds very familiar, like, from, like, a forensic file show or something. I, I, I yeah. it, it does sound familiar to me. So, yeah. That she's a real, uh, real piece of work. That'll be a fascinating yeah. book because her life is so fascinating. Uh, she was, uh, got pregnant twice in high school, had two abortions, uh, and both times the father of the child was her grandfather. What? Oh, goodness. God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Dear. Well, yeah, you, you know right book. there that something's very wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh. The thing is, her sister said, yeah, Grandpa used to uh, have sex with all the, all the grandkids, all the little kids, but uh, usually it stops about the time that sort of thing is supposed to stop. Well, will you please tell me at what time what? it's supposed to start? What? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, dear. Who, wrote, who yeah. wrote those rules? I know. Yeah, wow. I was to look that up. I couldn't find the, uh, the guidance on that. But uh, she, uh, no, she started having sex with her grandfather when she was a little kid and kept right on all the way up through high school. She even moved in with him. Oh, man. Oh, wow. Oh, so that, that's that's I can imagine that messed her up pretty bad. She uh, was Yeah, that's a pres- prescription for dysfunction. Yeah. It, and so, you know, that, that kind of brings me to the question, uh, Burl, how do you go about selecting topics for your new books? Is it what what in particular in, intrigues you and, and how does you know, how do you go from, hey, that's a great I I mean, I I do that as, as a writer myself, but what what is it that you look for? Well, I'll tell you, when I was uh, under contract to uh, Kensington before Wild Blue, they had their, their guidelines, and uh, they know what the audience likes and what the audience is interested in. Uh, and so I would look for cases that fit their criteria, and I would just, like, suggest three different cases. And my editor, I had a great editor originally named Karen Haas, who's no longer there, and then uh, Michael Hamilton, uh, the chief executive editor, she was my editor after that, uh, they would select uh, which one uh, they thought was best. Well, on the, this particular one, it was uh, one that was uh, submitted, uh, and they they were interested in that one. However, the uh, the deal was was not the deal that I would have liked. And, uh, and so I held off, and Wild Blue offered me... Uh, offered me a deal that I, I like much better. Uh, and uh, so far, I've been actually delighted and thrilled working with Wild Blue in terms of uh, how they work with the authors, uh, how they work with the readers, and any special deals that they give you, uh, mm-hmm. all sorts of great stuff. But it's, uh, it's really a pleasure working with Wild Blue Press. And in answer to your other question, sometimes I'm approached, uh, or a, a, a case I'll hear about, for a perfect example is I had on uh, my radio show, True Crime Uncensored, which Mm -hmm. I guess competes with yours indirectly because it's on the exact same time, but sometimes, you know, you pre-tape, we pre-tape, and people can listen to the podcast or whatever. I had a show on about what's called the IRP6, and that's six men from a software company currently serving 7 to 11 years in prison, and for the life of me and for the life of several other people, we can't find where there was any crime. And it's just uh, allegedly, I'd say, one of the greatest cases of American injustice I've ever seen. I was so blown away by this case, I asked them, may I please write a book about this case? And I went to uh, Steve, Wild Blue, and I said, I'd really like to do this. And well, you know, it's a, it's a white-collar crime. It's, you know, no one's been murdered. And I said, yeah, but it's a great story in terms of people who put their heart and soul into doing something very patriotic, developing software for American law enforcement and part of Homeland Security. And what appears to be that uh, allegedly the Department of Homeland Security did a software raid, uh, had the FBI raid their facility and try to steal their software and put these people away in prison when there's no crime committed. And uh, mm. I think it's just going to be a revelation when people read that book. And that's uh, one that Frank and I are going to do 
as soon as we finish up Wicked Widow. And I've got uh, that great private eye, Fred Wolfson, who uh, used to do the security for uh, State Department and OPEC. In fact, Fred received the highest medal in Saudi Arabia, which is unusual because Fred's a nice Jewish boy, and he's the only guy in Saudi Arabian to receive their highest medal. And that's because he uh, he caught the terrorist uh, who blew up a Saudi passenger airliner a few decades ago and uh, got a confession. And as a result, he was honored with their highest medal. And so he knows all about this sort of thing, and, and he's assisting us also. So that'll be the second uh, true crime book. Uh, after Man Overboard. That, so uh, ultimately, you, you got permission from Steve to do this book for Wild, Wild Blue, even though it was yeah, a white cop Yeah, he says, well, he yeah. says, if, if you want to do it, he says, yeah. you know, it's a little bit out of the ordinary for, you know, most true crime books because there's no murders in it. And I said, I know that. I said, but I think we can make the story compelling enough that uh, mm-hmm. people will read it and go, wow. This goes on in I think it's a, I, I'm kind of a, a little bit familiar with that case, and I think it's an important case that needs to be told. And and I think you know it, it's kind of something that you can break the ground. Not too many people are addressing blue collar crime or white yeah, collar crime. White collar, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And you know, you think about you think about the ripple effect of those crimes throughout all all of America and sometimes all over the world, and it, it has more impact on more people than oh, you know the true crime murders. So it, I'm I know, all for it. I'm glad you're one. doing it. I know of yeah. one that uh, that uh, that Fred Wilson told me about. And I won't go into details, but suffice it to say. It was a multi-billion-dollar white-collar scam done on American merchants, for which the American consumer had to cover the cost of billions of dollars. And when he went to uh, reveal this, he federal agents pulled him aside and said, "If you tell anyone about this, you will have federal agents hauling you away the next day." Well, that was yeah. several decades ago, and I think by now enough time has passed that, that we can tell that story. And there's a, another one that ties in with the IRP-6. Uh, I have details on a, a case where a fellow uh, almost defrauded the Department of Homeland Security for something like $60 million. Uh, and it was uh, only a car accident that kept it from happening. I mean, it did get some, but not all. So, I mean, it's kind of set the stage for for what the situation was well, when, the, when uh, the IRP-6 incident took place. It's all over. Look at, look at the uh, – I'm dealing with, as an Anthem subscriber, the Anthem security breach, the largest in the entire world, you know, over – 80 million people, and they said it was totally secure, and how they're able to get our social security numbers and our this and our that, and um, yeah, it's just it's just wild. So, you know, yeah, well, I, I was I'm, the victim of uh, I was the victim of identity theft and bank fraud back in 2004. Uh, oh yeah, it totally destroyed me. I'm still alive, thank God, but uh, everything I had was taken. Uh, all the money I had, all my accounts and stocks, bonds, whatever. Uh, Incredible. And, uh, uh, it was uh, dreadful, destroyed my credit, as you can well imagine. And all those things they say about, oh, we have uh, fraud protection on your credit cards and this, that, and the other. It'll be fine. It's not fine. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the cost of doing business. What was it? One of the major banks uh, turned out had doing money laundering for nations that we're not supposed to do business with and for drug cartels to the tune of several billions of dollars. I think it was $20 billion. Well, no one went to jail. Instead, they, the company was fined, uh, say, $5 billion. Well, if like a slap on the hand, yeah. And, uh, it's just a cost of doing business. Uh, just incredible. Hey, um, can well, we mention can we mention again the special deal on man oh, overboard? Oh yes, that's what I was I was going to do. Let's do that, and then I want to ask you about your your friend that that wrote the ballad for you. But let's let's do let's do this. Um, the promotion again is that um, you're able to get 
uh, Man Overboard um, for a meager 99 cents. It's just pocket change. Uh, if you go to wildbluepress.com slash M-O for Man Overboard. And for those people listening live right now, and also as an added feature and an opportunity, you can, another opportunity, you can register to win one of 25 true crime audiobooks from Wild Blue Press. Um, and I'm not sure whether you get the pick of what audiobook you would like or, or whatnot, but I'm sure you can find out from them. And uh, so you can register for that at the same time. And the winners of that will be announced next week. And, again, another thing I, I, I want to mention, please, please do go in. And uh, if you purchase a book for $0.99 cents from Burrow, if you get books for free from John and Kevin and other people afterwards in our series, please, please do go in as a courtesy and write a review on Goodreads, on on um, Amazon, um, Wild Blue Press. I'm not sure if they have that opportunity to put reviews there. I, I would hope that they do, or maybe they will in the future. It is so important for them because that that is how they get known and that is how they get paid. Right, so and please, remember, folks, right? buy books, buy books new, not used, because when you buy a used book, the author doesn't make a cent. That's very interesting. Yeah, we only make money if you buy a new book. Buy a new book. Okay, so please, please do be sure and and support them and do this. And, um, hey, you know, we still have about eight minutes or so. Can you, you, let's do a plug for Wild Blue. Can you tell us what what is it that that you saw from leaving your former, uh, or if the contract expired with Kensington or whomever, what what is it that's different about Wild Blue Press and and you know why what attracted you to go with them versus other publishing companies? Uh, what attracted me was the fact that so much thought uh, had gone into what the challenges are right now in the publishing world. Uh, what with so many people doing self publishing, which makes there a lot of white noise. I mean, because if Anybody can put up a book, whether they can write or not, and of course floods the uh, the universe. You know, <laughs> more books than ever. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But what they did is they started off with a core group of well-known and well-respected authors. Uh, I'm proud to be in the, in the company of people such as Caitlin Rother and uh, uh, Ron Francell, and Steve Jackson, and Kevin Sullivan, uh, John Ferret. Uh, you know names that are known and respected, people that you know, when you see that name, you know you're getting a good book. There's absolutely mm-hmm. no doubt. And uh, Wild Blue has been very selective on who they have as authors. It doesn't take just anybody. Right. Uh, it has to be, the work has to be excellent, or at least the author has to be already very well established and well known. So you know you're getting good people. And from an author's standpoint, uh, they've been absolutely wonderful on doing things such as prep, getting me on your radio show, uh, doing special promotions. Um, they, they know how to use the social media and the Internet and, and that sort of thing. And from a financial standpoint, uh, the royalty rate is, is attractive. And uh, it's challenging. I, mean, I have nothing but, but good things to say about my relationship with uh uh, with Kensington when I was with them and people can still buy my Kensington books and uh, Kensington still sends me royalty checks and mm-hmm. I very much enjoyed working with them but it was simply a matter of uh, on the uh, uh, no one else was going I mean Kensington wasn't going to put out Man Overboard again which I really wanted out but Wild Blue was willing to do that and uh, when I had to decide between what, what to do with this new book that uh, Frank and I are doing it's a Wicked Widow uh, I just had to weigh the options between Kensington's offer and Wild Blue's offer, and uh, my gut told me to go with Wild Blue, and I'm very happy I did. Well, that's a wonderful endorsement, and I, I have to say that it's been, you know, we've, we've had a very good uh, beginning relationship here, and I, I, I can can foresee that there's nothing but good things to come 
for me as well. I'm very happy they're giving us this opportunity. Look at all the new friends that I'm that, that I'm meeting and all the the new books I get to read, and a lot of uh, you know a lot of other um, you know um, spillover. Uh, effect from that, and I, I, you know, and we're we're trying to introduce our audience to that to that as well. You know, true, families of true crime might not necessarily always be, um, you know, readers of these books because they live it. But you know, if when we have good people like you come on and you have a book that has a, a humor, I mean, I think that's a little bit of comic relief, and we we all need that. And we, oh, we, we do. Need, we we right? can all use a good yeah. laugh once in a while even in the true crime world. And that's one thing I can say about Matt Overboard. Well, I was on Dan Zapansky's show. You know, he's a great guy, and he does a great radio show called True Murder. And he says, I was surprised that your, your humorous style that I hear on your radio show uh, was already shining through with Matt Overboard, which is a book originally written t- before it was updated 20 years ago. I said, well, that's because I could write it the way I wanted to write it. Uh, you know, the, the, the traditional publishers have a very set format on how you have to write the book. It has to be kind of just the facts, ma'am, sort of thing. You can't make smart aleck remarks to the reader or to the characters or whatever, uh, which right. I do with Matt Overboard. It is, it is a totally different style, and uh, a lot of it's tongue-in-cheek, and it is amusing. And I think... You know, from uh, based on the reviews that you've read and you've seen the, the uh, people that really like the book. And uh, that makes me so happy that when people get a book of mine and then I hear, you know, that they really enjoyed it. Of course, some people don't enjoy my books, but then again, you can't please everybody. And that's you can't win them all, right? But yeah, you win well, the you majority know, I, of I, them. Yeah, well, Michael Hamilton occasionally gave me a great piece of advice when she says, don't get too concerned about if you read bad reviews. She says, remember, you write books for people who like your style, not for people who don't. <laughs> That's true. That That is very true. And, hey, is and there a – you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. Uh, it says that the only review – it's great to get good reviews. I don't know if you, people get my books and they – and I really hope that they enjoy it. They'll, they'll post a positive review on, on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes & Noble, or wherever they get it. Right. But as, as she said, the, the the review that matters the most is the one from your editor saying, we want you to write more books for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, because that that is very important. And uh, I'm just wondering from the standpoint of, you know, because you've done a, a radio show for over six and a half years, give us contact information on that. And is there any particular message that you'd like to impart to our listeners with regard to this book or any books that you that you write? It's 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 always nice to leave them with a message. Well, there's a there's a message. The reason I write the true crime books, the serious one, is it's not exploitation. People say, "Oh, you're bottom feeders. You're making money off the pain of others." No one says that to newspapers, who don't go as in depth as we do, but they're in the business to make money. They're selling advertising. The true crime TV shows are making money off their commercials. Uh, the TV news that covers the crime stories, uh, they're making money with their commercials. There's mm-hmm. no commercials in my book. Uh, we'll spend, true crime author will spend sometimes a year or more, or I even know one by who spent 25 years researching a, a true crime book. We'll devote at least a good year of our lives to researching this story, going as in-depth as we can, and with the goal used of being on the serious books, to save lives. Because if you read these books, you you learn the warning signs of scams and the warning signs of sociopaths and psychopaths that could, you know, take your life, <laughs> you know. And so uh, uh, when I write the kind of true crime books where someone, you know, died, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I hope to elevate their death to the level of sacrifice for the lives of others. The people reading the book will learn something that will help keep this from happening to other people. Right. Well, I think that's very commendable, and it, it's, it's, it's definitely from the heart. And I know that, that people are going to learn a lot from all of the books that you write. So um, I have to say, uh, just so that people know, uh, you, can, you can always go to Outlaw Radio as well to, to listen to you. Oh, yeah, my, I'm my, radio show is, uh, my radio show is actually on the same time as, as this one, <laughs> which is amazing. But you have archives too? 
Yes, we have archives. So people can listen. I always post the show uh, online uh, on the site and on Mixcloud so they can uh, listen to it, download or whatever. Uh, the show is uh, on outlawradiousa.com, uh, True Crime Uncensored. And there's a True Crime Uncensored page on Facebook. And I have a, uh, a Burl Bear uh, page on Facebook. And uh, I have a website, net. And you can also go to truecrimeuncensored.com uh, and see, you know, who we who we have and listen to. I have about 100 shows up in the, even though we've done over 300 shows, uh, there's a hundred more recent shows on the player on the website, so you can mm-hmm. hear yourself for many hours listening to our own Wonderful. Shows. Well, well, with that, we're gonna we're gonna have to wrap up this uh, hour. It's it's just flown by. So, thank you so much, Burl. I hope you'll keep in touch with me. And um, it's been a, it's been an honor to have you on my show. And well, please, thank you. And um, please, everyone, go to. Uh, Wild Blue Press in order to get his book as well as uh, another audio book and write your review. Delilah, thank you so much, and we will see you next Saturday for another edition of Shattered Lives. All right, everyone. Thank you. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, goodbye.